This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron, who is innovating to help responsibly meet rising energy demands, like at their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Hey, before we get to the show, I want to tell you about a podcast from TED called Work Life with Adam Grant. He's an organizational psychologist, and in each episode, he takes you inside the minds of some of the world's most unusual professionals to discover the key to a better work life. This week, how to remember anything, how memory is a skill you can learn, and a powerful strategy every workplace can harness. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So back in 1963, Ruby Sales was a first-year student at Tuskegee University in Alabama. Um, what did you, what did you study there? I studied American history, which has always been my passion. And um, how did you get involved in activism? Well, this was a period where. Black activism was very much alive on black, historically black colleges throughout Alabama. The unwelcome, unwanted, unwarranted, and force-induced intrusion. Because you had had the boycott in Montgomery, and you had had the integration of the University of Alabama, and so that the Alabama was a hotbed of activism. They have a right to be here, protected by that court order. They have a right to register here. I was already pruned to be open to a conversation about becoming a movement activist. And I had been trying to find my voice as a rebel because I had always been a rebel. And so I was at Tuskegee breaking all the rules, drinking wine at the pond, swimming naked with the boys, until I became really aware of the movement, and that changed my life. And from that day forward, I was committed to social activism. Deep down in our nonviolent creed is the conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they're worth dying for. And if a man and happens to be was it fairly easy for you to get involved, to go to a meeting and to meet people? Was it on campus? It was on campus. Well, the first thing that happened was that we went to Selma to march across the bridge. I was in all the way in the back, and so by the time it got to be my turn to walk across, everybody was turned back, and I remember just chaos and havoc. And then with the beatings, the whole body of students at Tuskegee became more and more galvanized, and the dean of students arranged for us to have our first demonstration as a student body in response to the beatings on the Elmer Pettus Bridge at the Capitol in Montgomery. So the dean literally, in conjunction with the president of the student body, literally chartered buses for us to go to the Capitol to stage a protest. We're going to stand up right here in Alabama amid police dogs if they have them. We're going to stand up amid tear gas. We're going to stand and it was in that protest moment 
that I began to realize that the white world had a very different vision of who I was than what my community had taught me. And so it was at that moment that I realized in the face of dogs, billet clubs, and charging horses that white people hated me enough that they would kill me. Do, was, there, was there, do you remember feeling fearful, energized? Absolutely. Both? Uh, well, there's always a moment of fear when you face people who have weapons that can hurt you. Mm. But there's something about a movement spirit where you transcend fear and you become a part of something larger than fear. And so momentarily I felt afraid, but the fear dissipated in the face of the community energy and the resolve and the bravery of ordinary people on that bridge that day. We are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. Later that year, in 1965, Ruby had another experience with the movement that would change her life forever. Here's more from Ruby Sales on the TED stage. And just a quick warning, what you're about to hear includes some violence and graphic language. I want to share with you a moment in my life when the hurt and wounds of racism were both deadly and paralyzing for me. And I think what I've learned can be a source of healing for all of us. When I was 17, I was a college student at Tuskegee University, and I was a worker in the Southern Freedom Movement, which we call the Civil Rights Movement. During this time, I met another young 26-year-old white seminarian college student named Jonathan Daniels from Cambridge, Massachusetts. We had come to Lowndes County to work in the movement. And on a hot summer day in August, Jonathan and I joined a demonstration of local young black people who were protesting the exploitation of local black sharecroppers by rich landholders who cheated them out of their money. And on the morning that we showed up for the demonstration, we were met with a mob of howling white men with baseball bats, shotguns, and any weapon that you could imagine. And they were threatening to kill us. And the sheriff, understanding that this was really very dangerous, arrested us and put us on a garbage truck and took us to the county jail, which was in Hainville. And there were 14 young women like myself, and the rest were young men. And Jonathan Daniels and Father Morris Rowe, who had come down, he was a priest, he had come down from Illinois. He was also arrested with Jonathan and the rest of the group that day. And we stayed in jail in the most incredibly barbaric circumstances where the white jailers threatened to threaten us with being raped 
where we were told that we had to drink water from the toilet. It was pure psychological warfare. And out of nowhere one morning, the sheriff told us we had to get out of jail. And we said, no, no one has posted our bill. Why would you make us leave? He said, get out of my jail right now or you'll be sorry. So against our better judgment, we left the jail. And it was one of those hot August days. I don't know if you know how the heat palpitates from the pavement in the South in August. And Jonathan Daniels, Father Morris Rowe, George Bill, and I were designated by the group to go and get sodas for everybody. And so we walked down to the store, which we had always gone to the store, so we didn't think that we were meeting any danger. And when we got to the store, Tom Coleman was standing there waving a shotgun and threatened to blow my brains out. And just as he uttered the words, Jonathan Daniels pulled me back. I fell down on the steps and he took the bullet that was intended for me. And Father Morris Rowe was with Joyce Bailey and seeing that Jonathan had been shot and I had, he thought I had been shot also, he started running with Joyce Bailey. And he held her hands. I could see him out the corner of my eyes when I realized I wasn't dead. And he only let go of her hands when Tom Coleman shot him in the back. And so he lay in that hot Alabama sun, crying for water. I can hear his voice today crying for water. And Tom Coleman was walking over his body with a shotgun, daring any of us to give him water. And he later on told us that he was taken to the hospital in a hearse on top of Jonathan's dead body, where he lay in a hallway of a hospital for hours because white surgeons would not operate on him. You were a kid. I mean, you were 17 years old when that happened. And you describe how for six months you you couldn't speak after that. I could not speak. I was traumatized. And I was trying to make sense out of being a survivor. I was trying to make sense out of Jonathan's death. And so I just really went inside of myself and just shut down and would not talk. The only time I really talked was when I went to the trial because I was determined, despite the threats on my life, I was determined that I would show up and testify on behalf of Jonathan and Father Morris Rowe. Was there a part of you at that time, because I can imagine how much fear that, um, and the terror of that experience um, would have triggered, um, were there moments where you thought that you would just, I don't know, stop fighting? That you would just sort of, I don't know, fade away? No, actually, that drove me to fight harder. The 
burning of our churches will not deter us. Yes, sir. The bombing of our homes will not dissuade us. Yes, sir. The beating and killing of our clergymen and young people will not divert us. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Not even the marching of mighty armies can halt us. Yes, sir. We are moving to the land of freedom. Yes, sir. The world doesn't change on its own. It needs people who believe in an idea and are willing to fight for it, even against all the odds. So today on the show, we're going to explore ideas around activism, what motivates it, why it starts, and how just one person can make all the difference. The man who killed Jonathan Daniels was acquitted by an all-white jury. Father Richard Morris Rowe, who was also shot, survived. And 17-year-old Ruby Sales, she committed the rest of her life to the call of activism while teaching the next generation to do the same. You know, Ruby, I'm wondering, when you work with younger activists today, do you feel like there's a sense of impatience because what you went through the civil rights movement, that this was a decades-long struggle, still is. So do you tell younger people to be patient, or, or do you understand that sense of urgency? I think young people, it is the nature of young people to be impatient. That's what gives them the edge to change things. Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting a young person at 13 years old to have the patience that I have. That then breaks their spirits. I expect them to be demanding. I expect them to be ruthless in their demands. I expect them to push and ex- to have high expectations. What I don't expect them to do is to give up when one demand isn't met. But I find it particularly refreshing that they have high expectations. But a 40-year-old should have learned something that a 13-year-old doesn't know. If we were to tell a 13-year-old to be patient, they probably would say what I said when people told me to be patient. Patience be damned. I want it now. And so I think we have to allow young people that edge. We have to allow them to be demanding. We have to allow them to push us. We have to allow them to say no, not tomorrow, but right now. And then we have to let them see that it doesn't come right now. That's Ruby Sales. She's founder and director of the Spirit House Project. It's an organization dedicated to the fight for social and racial justice. You can see Ruby's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about how to change the world. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Raymond James, a firm where financial advisors help you plan for every part of your life. No two lives are alike. That's why everyone deserves a financial plan as unique as they are. Backed by sophisticated resources and teams of specialists, a Raymond James financial advisor gets to know you, your passions, and everything that makes your life uniquely complex. Because what inspires your goals matters, whether that's charitable endeavors, mapping out the future of a business, or building a legacy for your family. Raymond James advisors use thoughtful planning and powerful tools to help people they serve embrace life and live it well. To learn more or connect with an advisor today, go to RaymondJames.com. 
Raymond James & Associates, Inc., member New York Stock Exchange, SIPAC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about changing the world. Do you ever remember a time where you were so scared you almost wanted to stop? Well, I remember being very scared, but I never wanted to stop. Uh, I was terrorized at my home, uh, you know, threatened with guns, and then, of course, beaten by the police in San Francisco very severely to the point that I almost died. But uh, the thought of stopping has never entered my mind. This is Dolores Huerta. She's a labor leader and a civil rights activist and the co-founder of United Farm Workers. Around the same time Ruby Sales was involved in the struggle for civil rights in the South, Dolores Huerta was organizing migrant farm laborers in California, fighting for better pay and working conditions. Dolores has been an activist for over 60 years. She actually just turned 89. But even today, she's still pushing for people to get involved. I have so much faith in the organizing model that if you can just reach people and talk to them and meet with them and show them that they have power, convince them that they have power, this is such an important element because if we're going to keep our democracy alive. People have got to get involved and they've got to understand that they have responsibility to participate and that they can make a difference. And for Dolores... She discovered her own power to get involved back in the 1950s when she started working in California with a man named Fred Ross. Here's more from Dolores Huerta on the TED stage. I want to give you an example of how I found my voice. And I was very fortunate in that when I was 25 years old, I met a gentleman named Fred Ross Sr., who organized a chapter of a group called the Community Service Organization in my hometown of Stockton, California. This was a grassroots organization, and I was recruited to be a volunteer. So one day, while we're sitting in the office, a farm worker comes in, and he's paralyzed. He can hardly walk. He has a crutch, and he needs help. He needs someone to help him go down to the welfare office and make an application. So I volunteered to do that. But when I got to the welfare office, they would not let me make an application. I didn't know what to do. I was at a loss. So I went back to the office and I told Mr. Ross, and he said to me very sternly, you go right back down to that welfare office and you demand to see a supervisor, and you demand that they let him make an application. And I thought, wow, I can do that? (laughs) So I thought about it and I kind of overcame my anxieties and my fears. I went down to the welfare office and I demanded to see the supervisor. Sure enough, he came out and they had to let Mr. Reese make an application for welfare. And he got his disability for himself and his family. But that taught me a lesson. That taught me that I had a voice. I mean, you did that, right? And, and I wonder, when you think about activists today or people who are considering it, what is it that prevents people from becoming active and involved? A lot of it is fear, uh, apathy, that they don't really know that they have power. A lot of people just feel, well, that work belongs to somebody else. 
you know, it doesn't really involve me. I think a lot of people, especially people that are working class, uh, they're so busy uh, just trying to survive. You know, you have parents that have to work two jobs and they've got to raise their children. And even when, when they hear what's happening in the world, again, they don't realize that they can have a role uh, to make sure that that just, that, that they, they don't have a role to, to know that they can make things better. And I think that's why a lot of times it's hard to get people to vote because many people get cynical. They don't feel that if they vote that it's going to make any difference. And so it, it's just we have to do a lot, a lot of education, civic education, uh, to make people understand that they can make a difference. I want to give you an example of a woman in our foundation just to show you that sometimes people, they have power, but they don't know it. So Leticia Prado is a, an immigrant from Mexico, only has a sixth grade education, and speaks very limited English. But she was very concerned because the children at the middle school in their town called Wheat Patch, this is in California, Central Valley, uh, they couldn't go out and uh, play in the schoolyard because the air quality is so bad. So she and her husband went out there and they passed a bond issue to build a brand new state-of-the-art gymnasium for the kids at their middle school. That was a big success. Then she heard a rumor that the principal was going to end the breakfast program for the farmworker children because the principal felt it was just too much paperwork. So Letitia got herself elected to the school board. And they kept the breakfast program, and she got rid of the principal. <laughs> and this is just an example of a woman who never went to high school, never went to college, but she found her power. We recently had midterm elections here in the United States of America, and what did we see? We saw that so many more women, young people, people of color, LGBT folks were all elected to public office. And so we now see that we have this potential. We have this potential to get rid of the apathy, and if we can get everyone involved, get everyone committed. I want to just remind everybody, we have power. But in order to achieve the peace that we all yearn for, we've all got to get involved. Dolores, a lot of young people are, are looking at our political climate and they're impatient, right? There's, there's a sense of urgency that things have to change quickly. Do you think, based on your experience, that, that activism and social justice require patience? I agree with the young people. I think... Uh, I do think that we have to move a lot faster than what we have been moving in terms of social justice issues. But at the same time, the young people have to understand that we have to institutionalize some of these demands that we want and some of the changes that we want. So it's not just about protests. It's about making sure the things that we want to change are embodied in some kind of legislation, some kind of a law. There is a difference between uh, organizing and mobilizing. You can mobilize people very quickly, like we have seen in these massive marches that we've seen, like the Women's March, when people are of the same mind or if they understand the issues. But in order for people to get mobilized, they've got to be organized to begin with. They've got to be educated on the issues. So I think if we can somehow expand our organizing model, you know, sit in people's living rooms, talk about the issues so that they can understand what's going on, then we get more participation in terms of uh, activism. Hmm. As you look 
toward the future. Um, are you as optimistic today as you were when when you began as as a twenty five year old community activist? Like, do you think you were more optimistic then? I am still very optimistic, and the reason I'm optimistic is because when it comes to knowledge, and it is accessible, people can't hide. So many of these uh, inequities that we face in our society, they're not only visible, but they're accessible. So you can know who the players are. So I, I do, I feel very, very optimistic, actually. I think we're going through a hard moment right now, just like we did in the 60s. But because we are in this difficult moment, a lot of more people are coming out of their apathy. A lot more people are getting involved. And especially you see a lot of women getting involved. And, uh, you know, to quote Coretta Scott King, who said, we will never have peace in the world until women take power. I see that happening. That's Dolores Huerta, labor leader and civil rights activist. You may have also heard of the other co-founder of United Farm Workers, a man named Cesar Chavez. You can see Dolores's full talk at TED.com. So when many of us think of the word activist, we think of participating in a grassroots movement, going out on the streets. Is that like a good working definition of what it means to be an activist? Well, look, I think the the basic impulse is the same, right? Is is people binding together in pursuit of some goal, challenging power in some way. Yeah. But the way that plays out in the 21st century does look pretty different, and the repertoire of activism, I think, is broader. This is Jeremy Hymans. He works to mobilize activists around the world. Yeah, I've been an activist really all my life. I started, you know, as a child activist back in Australia where I grew up. In fact, in the early 90s, when Jeremy was 12, he tried to stop a war with a fax machine. Jeremy Hymans picks up his story from the TED stage. It was the eve of the Gulf War, and I organized a global campaign to flood the hotel, the Intercontinental in Geneva, where James Baker and Tarek Aziz were meeting on the eve of the war, and I thought if I could flood them with faxes, we'll stop the war. Well, unsurprisingly, that campaign was wholly unsuccessful. You know, and there were lots of reasons for that, but there's no doubt that one sputtering fax machine in Geneva was a little bit of a bandwidth constraint in terms of the ability to get a message to lots of people. And so I went on to discover some better tools. I co-founded Avaz, which uses the internet to mobilize people and now has almost 40 million members. And I now run Purpose, which is a home for these kinds of technology-powered movements. So what's the moral of this story? Is the moral of the story, um, you know what, the fax is kind of eclipsed by the mobile phone. Uh, this is another story of tech determinism. Well, I would argue that there's actually more to it than that. I'd argue that in the last 20 years, something more fundamental has changed than just new tech. That there has been a fundamental shift in the balance of power in the world. So in your talk, you introduce this idea of new power. Um, what is it? So we think of new power as this kind of critical method, this critical mindset that you need in the 21st century. And that is this ability to harness the energy of these connected crowds that are all around us. So the metaphor that we use, we contrast old power and new power. 
You know, old power is power as currency. It's the kind of power that you can hoard up. So the more of it that you have, the more powerful you are. Uh, you use that power, you spend it to maintain your position. But new power works differently. It, it isn't the kind of power you can hoard up. It's power as a current. What we mean by current is like water or electricity. It's most powerful when it surges. It's most powerful when people are participating. And the more people participate, the stronger the current gets. And so that's how we think about the difference between old power and new power, right? So in a world where everybody's connected, where everybody can spread ideas, can mobilize communities and followers very quickly, um, the realm of digital activism is a whole new space that's opened up in the last 20 years that has enabled a series of different kinds of movements to emerge. So like what? So you think about the Me Too movement. I think it's, it's, it's a great example of the new kinds of movements that you see in this kind of new power world, right? So to come back to that metaphor of new power works like a current, um, with the Me Too movement, you get this incredible surge of energy that kind of more or less comes from nowhere. So Tarana Burke had been seeding this idea for a decade, but then all of a sudden it catches fire. Mm. And the way that it does, many people take that energy They adapt it and make it their own. So in France, the Me Too movement becomes denounce your pig, much more French, right? Balance ton porc. In Brazil, it becomes my first assault because the problem is so prolific there. And the structure of these movements is different. The way people participate in them is different. The speed, the scale, the density of participation is unprecedented in a movement like that. What's interesting about new power is the way it feeds on itself. Once you have an experience of new power, you tend to expect and want more of it. So let's say you've used a peer-to-peer lending platform like uh, LendingTree or Prosper, then you've figured out that you don't need the bank. And who wants the bank, right? And so that experience tends to embolden you. It tends to want, make you want more participation across more aspects of your life. And what this gives rise to is a set of values. So if you, were, if you were thinking about something like the civil rights movement and you were to sort of say, okay, this is what it would look like today under a new power structure, what, what, what would it be? I think you'd, you could look at Black Lives Matter. The founders were women. Two of them were queer women, and they had a very particular perspective about how to lead in a movement. They felt that if they made the movement all about them and they didn't create a context in which many leaders could emerge in a decentralized way, that the power of the movement would be limited. Um, And I think that was very effective for creating a lot of energy around criminal justice, police brutality. That kind of movement can be less effective in pushing very specific policy outcomes. And that's where you kind of need almost like a relay between old power and new power. When new power creates the energy, creates a lot of decentralized activity, spreads an idea, and then old power institutions can sort of help push that into, for example, a state house legislature, um, where you've got to do sort of particular kinds of gritty work uh, in order to get a particular bill passed. Hmm. Um, the most effective movements today are combining old power and new power. 
Now, the NRA is a great example of this, right? It's got a brilliant old power strategy. You know, it's got a fearsome brand. Um, they project this power. They, they project this ability to change an election. And at the same time, they're very good at new power, at kind of releasing control, cultivating the energy of their supporters. And those supporters go far beyond the people who pay dues to the NRA. And what they do is they basically cultivate that energy. They fund little blogs and gun clubs and local activists. And then they essentially see the stuff that's bubbling up, the stuff that's taking off. And then they bring some of their old power, might and resources in and they really amplify. So you're talking about really big movements, right? But but what about like on a smaller scale? Because it's it's almost a truism that the squeaky wheel is always going to get some grease, right? But in the past, to be a squeaky wheel, you had to show up. You had to be a pain in someone's butt, right? Yeah. And today... If you want to be a squeaky wheel, it's not it's like not that hard to mobilize people quickly to to irritate somebody to the point where, you know, a politician or or a journalist or somebody in the public eye is going to respond and react as a result of your complaints. Exactly. And and companies and organizations still haven't quite learned how to respond to these huge kind of currents of new power. Institutions are good at dealing with other institutions. They're not very good at dealing with with movements. And I think you're also right that anyone can be a squeaky wheel. I mean, I think one of the fascinating things, I mean, if you're a kid today, you know, what you're learning every day are these skills of mobilization. You know, every kid has followers. Every kid is thinking in a way about how to build community around the content that they produce. So that's why it's so much easier now for anyone to take that up. Um, and that, unfortunately, is also why it's easier for extreme ideas to spread. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it also gives me a lot of hope because, you know, kids today, and we saw this wonderfully with the Parkland kids, are using these skills to fight for justice. Um, digital activism is an entree to those more committed forms of activism. I think that the, the version of activism that we have maybe in our heads, the version that maybe we tell stories about in our films, is an incredibly important form of activism. But it's not the only form of activism that matters, and it's not the only form of activism that has brought about change. So we need all these kinds of participation. That's Jeremy Hymans, co-author of New Power. He's also the CEO of Purpose. It's an organization that helps build and support movements around the world. You can see his full talk at ted.npr.org. On the show today, ideas about changing the world. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, American Express. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This message comes from Apple Card. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card. It has no fees and gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Credit Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about changing the world. And for some people, the idea of getting involved, of joining a movement, can seem a little daunting, especially if you're an introvert. Oh, absolutely. This is Sarah Corbett. I'm quite an extreme introvert. But Sarah's also an activist. And her approach? Activism that's quiet, reflective, even intimate. Something known as craftivism. So craftivism was a a word coined in 2003 by an American lady called Betsy Greer, who's a knitter, and noticed that lots of knitting groups were talking about personal issues and also political issues. And for me, I think it's most effective as a form of gentle protest. So making something for yourself and using the time of crafting to think deeply about how you can be a good global citizen. So that's what I do in my craftivism. Sarah Corbett explains more about craftivism from the TED stage. I use craft, like needlework, as a way to bring in nervous, quiet introverts into activism. By doing repetitive actions like handicraft, you can't do it fast, you have to do it slowly. And those repetitive stitches help you meditate on the big, complex, messy social change issues. But doing needlework together as well, extroverts and introverts, because it's a a quiet, slow form of activism, While you're stitching, you don't need eye contact with people. So for nervous introverts, it means that you can stitch away next to someone or a group of people and ask questions that you're thinking that often you don't get time to ask people or you're too nervous to ask if you give them eye contact. So you can get introverts who are those big, deep thinkers saying, that's really interesting that you want to do that extrovert form of activism that's about shaming people or quickly going out somewhere. But who are you trying to target and how? And is that the best way to do it? So it means you can have these discussions in a very slow way, which is great for the extrovert to slow down and think deeply, but it's really good for the introvert as well to be heard and to feel part of that movement for change in a good way. And one example that I do a lot with introverts, but with lots of people, is make gifts for people in power. So not be outside screaming at them, but to give them something like a bespoke handkerchief, saying, don't blow it, use your power for good. We know you've got a difficult job in your position of power. How can we help you? And what's great is for the introverts... We can write letters while we're making these gifts. So for us, Marks and Spencers, we tried to campaign um, to get them to implement the living wage. So we made them bespoke handkerchiefs, we wrote them letters, we boxed them up, and we went to hand-deliver our gifts and to have that form of intimate activism where we had discussions with them. And what was brilliant was that the chair of the board told us how amazing our campaign was, how heartfelt it was. So that was that intimate form of activism. We had lots of meetings with them. We then um, gave them Christmas cards and Valentine's cards to say, we really want to encourage you to implement the living wage. And within 10 months, they'd announced to the media that they were going to pay the independent living wage. Thank you. 
So the other folks on this episode are all somewhat different from you in that they I don't think that they would describe themselves as introverts, but I don't want to speak for them. But You never know, guys. You never know. We all hide. <laughs> right? There's like a, a, you know, you can imagine them with a bullhorn, you know, and speaking to hundreds of people and saying, let's mobilize and, and come on, let's, let's mm-hmm. go do this. And so I think when people think of the word activist, they think of somebody who's sort of a, an obvious leader who can speak extemporaneously to lots of people really quickly. And you are an introvert. Well, I think I obviously knew activists as, you know, people who would do the big speeches. But I also saw activists as people who would, you know, when we were squatting to save social housing, there was a rota for people to be in the housing so that the bulldozers couldn't come and knock them down. Hmm. And I saw them just as important as the people making the cups of tea to encourage people. So I never had in my head that an activist has to be loud and on a stage and on a podium. And I think, you know, growing up in a Christian family, personally, humility is a huge asset that we talk about. You know, we're there to serve a cause, not to be a celebrity. And for me, one of the big click moments in a way was in secondary school. um, I was nominated to be head girl from my peers. Um, which I never wanted to be head girl. I don't like people looking at me. I don't like being on a stage. But on the other side, I could see that I was quite unusual in my peer group, that I did know how to chair a meeting. I knew how to write minutes. I knew how campaigning worked. Campaigning doesn't have to be petitions or demonstrations or strikes. It can be asking questions of the right people, finding out who influences them. The most effective success in a campaign is if someone makes a decision who's already in power, who can put that decision in place and they don't even realise that you were helping to change their mind. You don't get any praise for it and they might not even realise that you've helped change their heart or their mind or their business policy or their, you know, their law in government. You know, I think there's this idea that people who believe in change feel like they can't do it because they just don't have the power, the ability, or the willingness yeah. to stand up and to speak out. But, I mean, the, the idea here is that that is not a requirement. That is not a job description for how to change the world. Oh, yeah. And to stand up and speak out. Well, sometimes we need to sit down and listen <laughs> and not do that. And also campaigning can take a long time. You know, everyone loves my Marks and Spencer story because it's nice and compact and shiny and it took under a year. But that's very rare. In most campaigns, you know, it all takes a long time. But I think that's really important that we see it as progress and not as transactional. We need to see the strike is one piece of the jigsaw puzzle, not the whole puzzle. I think it's really important that we see everything holistically. And are also humble with, yes, I'm one person, so I might not be able to, to change the world, but I also can do a lot as an individual. Yeah. The, the idea, I guess, that, that you're pushing for is that you don't have to be charismatic or loud, to no. make a change. You can you can do this in quiet ways too. And I think my worry is with the loud extrovert stuff is one, you're excluding half of the world's population who say, I can't do that or I'm too nervous. But also it's quite ego led and, you know, 
I think that's very sobering for activists to learn about the importance of taking a step back and breathing and going, okay, do I need to lead this movement or do I need to be behind the movement, helping in quiet where where I'll never get um, praise for what I've done, which I think you know, is often where there's more power to be alongside people or to quietly help others. So I've got two calls to action for the introverts and for the extroverts. For the extroverts, I want to say that when you're planning a campaign, think about introverts. Think about how valuable our skills are just as much as extroverts. We're good at slowing down and thinking deeply and the detail of issues, we're really good at bringing them out. We're good at intimate activism, so use us in that way. And we're good at intriguing people by doing strange little things that help create conversations and thought. Introverts, my call to action for you is, I know you like being on your own. I know you like being in your head but activism needs you. So sometimes you've got to get out there. It doesn't mean that you've got to turn into an extrovert and burn out, because that's no use for anyone. But what it does mean is that you should value the skills and the traits that you have that activism needs. So for everyone in this room, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, the world needs you now more than ever, and you've got no excuse not to get involved. Thanks. That's Sarah Corbett. She's founder of the Craftivist Collective and author of the book, How to Be a Craftivist. You can see her full talk at TED.com. When I, when I say the word future, do you think optimism or do you go down a darker path? Oh, man, this is such a loaded question for me. This is Angela Oguntala. She's a designer and a futurist. Oh, and sometimes when I'm asked it, I know that my answer is really going to make some people uncomfortable because I am sometimes in the room in order to bring unbridled optimism (laughs) about change and about how we're going to move towards change. But I don't think you need to have the unbridled optimism in order to believe that you can change things. So I think it's kind of like a spectrum. I think you can either think that the world is getting better or that the future will be much better than it is now, or you can think that the world is getting worse. But that uh, continuum isn't as important to me, actually, as this idea of do you think you have agency in this world that is either getting better or worse? And Angela believes that if you want to change the world, You have to think about the future, because the way we think about the future can affect the way we act in the present. The future is a continuous, iterative process. It changes every single day, and your ideas about it changes also as you test and as you play with that idea of the future. So for me, that's the most important thing. Of course, there's a present, but there's this transition period before we reach this future that we can envision. Angela Ogantala picks up her idea from the TED stage. We love to think about the future. We have all of these predictions about what it will be like when it comes. The future of meat is lab-grown. The future of music is a chip in your brain. The future of chairs is a pair of bionic pants that you put on and then you just kind of lean back into. 
the future film of work, of love. We talk about the future like it's this thing that will just arrive one day. But why do we think that? Talking to your watch. This is the quintessential self-fulfilling prophecy. Pop culture has told us that talking into your watch is the future. So we've constantly tried to produce it and to reproduce it. And then there's the 1939 World's Fair in New York City, which showcased the world of tomorrow. 44 million people attended these exhibits, and they were told that this is what the future will look like. Master-planned cities in suburbia, superhighways, futuristic kitchen appliances. This helped to define the American dream, which meant that it ultimately helped to bring that specific dream to life. So these kinds of visions, they creep in, and then they stay with us, from Hollywood, from tech companies, from science fiction. And I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think we all collect visions so that we can have something to aspire to. But in the same way our visions inspire us, they can also start to limit us. If we hear the same narratives over and over again, and if we see the same visuals over and over again, then that becomes our scope of possibility. That becomes our benchmark for what we believe is good and what's not. So today, I want you to think about your assumptions about the future. Because there are just so many different futures and alternatives out there. And if we choose to be more curious about them, then they will make us rethink what's possible. Yeah. I mean, it's all related, right? And in the context of this episode, it's about trying to envision or make a better future, a better world. And, and, you know, I was talking to Dolores Huerta and Ruby Sales and, you know, asking what keeps you going? Because today in the United States, there are many reasons to feel pessimistic, especially around the, the issues that they work on, social justice, racial justice. We're living in, in sort of a dark period right now, or it seems like we are. And um, and what came up again and again was, I have to imagine a better future because otherwise I couldn't do what I do in the present. Do you think that that activism or the idea or the desire to change the world requires a belief in a better future? Yeah. Yeah, I do think so. But I don't think that you have to know the point at which that future will materialize. I think it's just an idea that we are on a journey towards something. The way that we see things now, it's not working. So it's just, and sometimes it's not even better, it's just different. So sometimes without even adding the value judgments, it's just what we're looking at now is not working. And in a lot of ways we can see it's not which is why we have this period of mass redefinitions of a lot of things we're opening up. Okay, what about work? What does the future of work look like? What is good work? Traveling. Can I travel as someone who cares about people and the planet? What is good masculinity? What is good femininity? I think there's a lot of things that we are understanding that it just doesn't quite work 
the way we've defined success in some of those things don't quite work anymore. So we need to think about things differently. And for me, uh, that is what motivates me because in some ways I don't know what a better future could actually look like. But I do know when things are broken. I can see when things are wrong and I would like to envision something different. When we choose to be curious about the alternatives and when we take them seriously, we'll start to think in new ways, we'll solve problems in new ways, and we'll just start to see possibilities that we couldn't see before. When it comes to our futures, we have hope, we have fear, but sometimes we forget that we also have influence. And that means we can choose the futures we want to work towards. Nothing is written in stone. So reconsider your vision of the future. Take a chance and be surprised. Thank you. That's Angela Ogantala. She's a designer and a futurist. You can see Angela's full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Changing the World this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, Melissa Gray, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Katie Montalione. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. On this week's episode of Wildcard, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Capella's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. See how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wild Card wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.